We're in Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. The sealing of the 144,000. The sealing of the 144,000. If you would, stand for reading of God's word. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000, and Reuben, 12, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Levi, Issachar, Zebulon, Joseph, and of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. This is the word of God. Father, we thank you for this time. As always, we are grateful that we can gather together as the body of Christ. It is good for us to be together. We enjoy one another's fellowship, but you also enjoy when your people come together and worship you. So we are doing that today to honor you, our God. And thank you for the privilege that we have. Many in the world don't have this. Many in some of the states are restricted. And Lord, I just am grateful that we are able to meet in this place. May your word permeate our beings. May we hear from you today something specific for us. We need you, our God. Maybe more than any other time in our lives, we need a touch from the Master. Please touch us in our area of need. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, please be seated. As you know, the theme of Revelation is Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back in judgment, okay? The second coming is for judgment. Now, for the church, when Jesus comes for us, it's hip, hip, hooray. But for the rest of the world, for those who are outside of Christ, for those who aren't true believers in Messiah, it's going to be the worst thing that's ever happened. It's going to be the day of the Lord will be the wrath of God poured out on earth. Now, we see this from the first trumpet judgment on, the wrath of God being poured out. The fifth seal last week, we saw that there were martyrs' souls under the altar. Now, I wondered, how did these people hear about Messiah? How did they become saved if everyone going into the tribulation were lost? And I'm suggesting by this week that the sealing of the 144,000 Jewish evangelists were active from the very first seal judgment on. That is what I believed happened. They heard this message, and they believed that Jesus is the Messiah. We also saw in the sixth seal, the cosmic events, and we went through these last week. These are epic proportions. I mean, God is getting the attention of planet Earth in the future. It says the sixth, the, the sixth seal was open, and a great earthquake. The sun became black. The moon was like blood. The stars of the heaven fell to Earth. Remember that stars was, was the word asteroids, and asteroids are going to be pummeling the Earth like a fig tree shaken. And then the sky receded as a scroll. I can't even imagine what that looks like. And then every mountain and island is moved out of its place, and then everyone, great and rich, every, every human being that can hide is hiding, and they're hiding from the wrath of the Lamb. And remember, we made the emphasis, instead of turning to the, to the Lamb, to turning to Him, they are hiding from Him. They are withdrawing from Him. And there's remember that in the first Four seals, there are 1.7 billion people that are killed on planet Earth. I mean, this is an atrocity that is beyond our ability to comprehend. 
You talk about post-traumatic stress disorder, this whole earth will have post-traumatic stress disorder after that. These cosmic disturbances are of magnitude that are off the charts. And I think finally these people are seeing that this whole thing is the wrath of God that's being poured out. Today, people view Jesus how? How do people view Jesus today? Love, isn't it? God, Jesus is love, believe me. He is a loving, wonderful, kind, gentle Savior. But he is also righteous, he is also holy, and he is also just. And he doesn't set aside one of his attributes to the favor of another attributes. He's all of these equally. All of these equally. And so people must realize that if you're going to re refuse the love of God, the love of Christ, then you'll ultimately and sadly be under the wrath of Christ. How sad can that be? Oftentimes people have a skewed view of Jesus. They use love as license to do whatever I want. God loves me and he's going to let me do whatever I want. That's not true. If you act contrary to God's word, then you are acting against the living God. There's a time when God says, folks, no more. There's a time when God says to a person or a nation, no more. Israel, the ten northern tribes, rebelled against God. Remember, there are no, no God-serving kings in the ten tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes. There weren't any. And so they went into captivity. They went into Assyrian captivity in 722 B.C. They wanted to worship the false gods. And God says, okay, you can worship them. You're going to go into captivity. They were past the point of no return. Judah had some righteous kings, had some times when the people were following God, but they ultimately ended up following the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the false gods of their culture, and they made it to the point of no return, and they went into captivity. And for both of those epochs of time, Assyrian and Babylonian captivity, there were prophets that were prophesying, oh, God loves you and everything's great and wonderful, and God's not going to really put you into captivity. And, and in Jeremiah says, these were false prophets. I did not send them. We have that happening today, where people are prophesying great and wonderful things, and this is your best life now. Don't believe it. This is a devolving situation, not an evolving situation. Pharaoh had the ten plagues, and it was God attacking the ten gods of Egypt. And he says, I'm going to show you who the true God is. Pharaoh hardened his heart and rejected God and rejected God and rejected God. And finally, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was past the point of no return. Romans gives us a similar warning of how people can harden their hearts and it is so sad that people will get to this point and say, I don't want you, God. But in Romans, it gives a sequence of events. And I just want to briefly share this with you. In Romans chapter 124, it says this, and I think this happened to our country. Now you think of the 1960s. That was my era. Okay, everybody's smoking pot and everybody's having sex. That was a sexual revolution. And it was free love. And what did you see all over the place? Peace and love. That is what you saw. God gave them up to the uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies with one another. This was the sexual revolution. This was, remember, all we need is love. Boom, 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 boom. That's what we, you know, or love the one you're with. That was another song. It was a free love, falling off, throwing off all restraints. 
And it was rampant sex all over the place. Believe me, I was in that era. All under the banner of love. And you know what happened? Homes were torn apart. Marriages were destroyed. Sexually transmitted diseases went skyrocketing. Divorce skyrocketing. But concomitant with this era of time, you know what happened? You know what the Supreme Court did? The Supreme Court made a ruling that they're going to remove prayer from the public education system in 1962. And in 1963, they said, oh, by the way, let's throw the Bible out too. And in 1973, with Roe v. Wade, we're going to start killing babies with impunity. We're going to murder babies. And it's going to be legal, and we're going to legalize this in America. It's going to be something that we do. In America, what do you see them doing? They're pushing God away and pushing God away. And into that vacuum will be filled with something, be filled with something, and is filled with demonic Satan-type things. Stuff of the flesh. Phase two is this. Romans 1.26. And God gave them up to vile passions, for even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also men leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lusts for one another, men with men committing what is shameful, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. This was the beginning of the homosexuality explosion in America. It was just the beginning of it. It started to be accepted through all the states. You know what happened concomitantly in the 1980s? The Supreme Court again ruled, we're taking the Ten Commandments out of the public domain. We don't want God there. And so what we see is more of a decline. And then finally, phase three, and I think that's where we are in America today. Phase three is Romans 1, 28 through 31. God, them, God gave them over to a debased mind. That's a mind that just kind of makes up evil. To do those things not fitting. This is a no holds barred, anything goad, goes no God, no restraints, and America has been kicking out God through all of these past decades. And this is the result. This is what the scripture says is the result of this. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-minded, whisperers, it's a lot of stuff here, backbiters, and this is the big one that just breaks my heart, haters of God. Have you ever seen in our nation today so many haters of God? Proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, eternal separation from God. In 2015, this is our time, folks. In 2015, there was God's government-sanctioned same-sex marriage, an insult to God's order. And today, what do we see? Violence in the streets, and a radical LBGT community that is active in this violence with Antifa. It's so sad how it has deteriorated. Now look, at God has given us a message to people of hope. And we love all people. Antifa, the lawless folks, the LBGT community, we have a message of hope for them. Please, give them a message of Jesus' love and hope. Because without that, they are deserving of death and eternal separation from a holy God. That is the sadness of this thing. It is a, we've been duped in, a, in our country. 
America, you know, I know there's a, a quote that's going out, our best days are ahead. If there's not revival and a, re, and a national repentance turning to God, our best days are not ahead. You see we're in phase three. The only way to stay this thing is for a national repentance to go on, and it has to be with the leadership because the leadership are responsible. And guess who make, puts the people in leadership? We do the people. The people. So we're going to suffer those consequences. The wrath of the Lamb is, going, is being poured out. But I want you to realize how gracious God is. Before he pours out his wrath, he has a witness. We have the 144,000 here that are going to be witnesses. But you know when he was going to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their bunch of sins that they did, it wasn't just homosexuality. It was all platitude of sins that they were doing. He, Abraham says, will you not save the city for 50? Will you save it for 45, God? And he says, yes, I will. Will you save it for 40, 30, 20, all the way down to 10? Yes, I would. They couldn't find 10 righteous people in the city. 10 righteous people. God wanted to spare them. The earth dwellers, what do they do when God pours out his wrath? And they realize it's the wrath during this tribulation time. They hide from God instead of turning to God. And God's heart has always come to me. Come to me, repent. Turn to me. I want you. I love you. I died for you. Don't go down that road. That is the heart of God. Again, God is long-suffering. Long-suffering. God has provided a witness during this awful time. This awful time. It's the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. God always has a witness. A few true remnant believers that will not cave to what's going on in the culture. Now, what we see in this verse in chapter 7 is an interlude in the chronology of events. Things are happening in order, and then there's a stop here in chapter 7. Mark Hitchcock describes it this way, sprinkled between these series of judgments are interludes or breaks that allow glimpses of key players and events. And we see this first interlude here. Andy Woods has in his work, he calls this, the nine chronological, and he's very intellectual, parenthetical insertions. This is an interlude or a, a, a skip in time or a stop in time. And notice it happens between the seals, trumpets, and bold judgments. Remember, this is bad. This gets, this, 1.7 billion bad, gets killed. This is worse. And get ready for the English. This is worser. This is worser. Okay. And notice it happens between the sixth and seventh seal. God takes a break and explains these guys who I think are active right from the beginning because those people in, in chapters, chapter 6 are under the altar. The souls are under the altar. There's many that are saved that are crying out. When are you going to come and, and make this right, God? I mean, the trumpet judgment between the sixth and seventh trumpet. And you have these things that are happening. Israel's flight. He's going to, expect, he's going to explain Armageddon here a little bit. And then finally, the worst of all, again, Armageddon, excuse me, Israel's flight, but Armageddon will be explained in the worst of all section between the sixth and seventh bold judgment. These are interludes. These are stops. These are pauses to get our attention, to give us a little more clarity on what's going on. God has a witness from the beginning of the tribulation to the end of the tribulation. Now, when you think of this epoch of time that we're living in today, this period of time 
right now called your life on planet Earth. Do you think we're evolving and things are getting greater and better, or you think we're devolving? And you would say devolving. That's right. It's deteriorating. As, and it's just like, like Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the second coming of the Son of Man. That's Matthew 24, 37. So what does God expect of you, believer, during this time? He expects us to stand up and be a witness. And be a witness even if it costs our lives. Remember martyrio, from the root word mart, martus, where we get our word martyr, all the way to the death. Now, verses 1 through 3, we see God's evangelistic program. After these things, I saw four angels. And again, he's, he's caught up. Met, he's caught up to... to, to heaven, he's seeing these things. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds back. The four winds are emblematic of judgment. That the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels. He wants these guys to hear. Don't do anything yet. Don't do anything yet saying, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. 144,000 sealed Jewish evangelists. Let me explain this to you. God has a, is so great. In the diaspora, which is the spreading of the Jewish people all over the world, they've been persecuted and spread all over. They've been embedded in every country. They know the language. They know the culture. They know the nuances of the society. They're completely, totally ready to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus. They don't have to go to Wycliffe for five years to learn the language and then kind of barely know it and barely know the culture and then be sent out. Now, these are trained and ready-to-go people that God is going to use. And these four angels are in the four quadrants of the earth. They're getting ready to pour out those trumpet judgments. God says, hold on. We have to seal the group of people first. Now this seal, did I say after these things, Metatawa? Okay, then after these things, so it comes up on the screen, is the word Metatawa. It means next in chronology, but not, ne but not next in chronology, but next in what John sees. Now since I skipped that and it's out of order, let me skip to where I'm at now. We're talking about the seals. These guys are going to be sealed. So a seal is this. This is not... This is not a seal itself, but the instrument that is going to be used for the sealing. It's a signet. It's a stamp of genuineness. And notice that they're sealed on their foreheads. Now, if you know anything about the book of Revelation, you know that the Antichrist, who's going to be, I think, indwelled by Satan by this point in the, that point in the tribulation, is a copycat. Satan is a copycat, and he's going to copy God's seal. And remember that 666? goes on the forehead or on the hand, on the palm, on the right hand. I wonder if that is the name of Satan being pasted on the foreheads of the followers of Satan. Notice this. What the seal is, we're not told, but in 14.2 gives us a clear, having the Father's name written on their foreheads. So in the tribulation period, the Father's name, you don't touch these people, they're mine. In Revelation 13, Satan, with his counterfeit sealing, wants to have his people totally dedicated to him. And I wonder if he writes his name across their forehead. 
Now, who else is sealed in Scripture? Well, if you're a Bible student, you know that you're sealed. The moment that you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, 13 and 14. In him you also trusted. That means in Jesus Christ you also trusted after you heard the word of truth. Somebody told you that Jesus Christ came to this earth died for your sins, was buried, rose again the third day, and if you believe that he died for you, you personalize it for you, and you receive the gift of salvation, say, I receive what you did. You died in my place. You took all of my wrath, Jesus. Then you are saved. Just knowing that Jesus came to the earth and died on a cross, that's not enough. It must be personalized. You receive him as your Savior. You believe and receive the message. Having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. John MacArthur helps us with this sealing. He says this, Paul speaks of this seal as a mark of identification placed on a letter or a contract or a document. The document was officially under the authority of the person whose stamp was on the seal. The seal signifies this, security. You are secure in Christ. Authenticity ownership, authority. This is a huge deal. When you are saved, you are in the family of God and you are secure in in Christ. This is a guarantee that you will finish your race. It's a done deal. It's a feta complete, as we would say. It's speaking, now again, this is speaking about the true believer, the true believer. Now, why am I emphasizing that? Because there are many who think they are true believers, but they are make-believers. They aren't really in the family of God. Maybe they've gone through the motion. They've learned the language. They've gone to church all their lives. They think that they're in, but they're not really in. Their lives have no indication of it. Now, how are those sealed supposed to live? How are genuine Christians supposed to live? Well, 2 Timothy 2.19 and Romans 8.29 give us a little bit of a hint. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription. God knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from unrighteousness or wickedness. Romans 8.29, we are told to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. Folks, I cannot tell you how important it is as Christians. You want to make sure that you're saved. You want to know that you know. First John says, These things are written that you may know that you have eternal life. But then he gives in 1 John all these indications that you're living for Christ as evidence that you are really in the family of God. 2 Corinthians 13.5 encourages us to examine our lives. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Test yourselves. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are adakimos, disqualified, not genuine? See, there's a lot of people that think they're genuine, but they're not. Oh, folks, make sure that you're genuine. Make sure that you're genuine. That's the most important thing. The Christian life, listen to this. Listen to this. The Christian life is a life of constant change. Constant change. You are expected to change from old you to new you. Now, remember, it's a process. It's not one day you wake up and you go, oh, I'm just perfect. I'm a perfect little Christian, and it's just so wonderful to be. No, it's a process. Some of us take longer than others. Some of us get stuck in different areas, but we're, we're, there's some movement here. 
There's a movement. I believe that persecution will separate the true from the false. You cannot be a phony Christian in North Korea where it'll cost your life, or Iran, or in those list of, of countries that I gave last week or the week before. You can't be phony. And I want to suggest to you this. God never saves a person for their best life now. Do you hear that? This is, this is, this is not popular. I mean, if you want to hear a pep talk, you can hear it all over Christendom. But he doesn't save you for your best life. Now, it's not about this world and its allure. It's not about that. Now, does this surprise you? I would say to some, it surprises them. We have been bought with a price, it says in 1 Corinthians 6.20. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. I have died with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. We are to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. Now, these things are true. But I want to suggest something else that is true. For those who have done that, for those who have died with Jesus, you know what Jesus calls you? He calls you his friend. You are a friend of Jesus. And there's nothing better than that. Now listen to this. Some facts you need to know about Jesus being your friend. He's a friend that is always with you through everything. There's no place that you go that your Jesus won't go with you. That's the truth. He knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like here. Remember, he was tested. He was tempted in every way, just like us. He experienced everything just like us. He's a friend that reminds me that I can make it through the mud of life. He tells me it's not all about me. He reminds me it's not about you, Rick. It's about Jesus. It's about him and serving him. That's what he tells me. He tells me I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I can, he tells me I can trust him to the end. And he also tells me the truth about my life. You might want to think about what you're doing over here, Rick. A true friend, John 15, 15, no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Friends, what a friend we have in Jesus. For all the things I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. It seems that friends hear and do what Jesus says. That's what a friend is. Now his disciples, the disciples, they, he was talking to his disciples here about calling you friends. It wasn't just a few hours later. That it, it, he said this in John 15. This is literally hours before the cross. That these, his friends are running away and deserting him. But he still considered them friends. See, they were weak in their own strength. We're weak in our own strength. We can't stand through the obstacles of life. We cannot stand all this indoctrination that's coming at us. We can't stand the negative news that is pounded on us 24-7. They couldn't take it. We can't take it. What do they need? What do we need? The Holy Spirit's power. The Holy Spirit's power. Jesus said in John 14, 16 and 17, he says, I'm going to send you. I will pray the Father, and he will send you another one, another helper. That another in the, in, in the Greek is, Elos, another one just like me. You want to know what the Holy Spirit's like? Just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. He will abide for you forever. And he called him the Spirit of Truth. Now, isn't that something that we need today? Is the Spirit of Truth permeating our lives so we can discern all of the lies that we're hearing? That is what we need. 
a spirit of truth. In a world of lies, and guess what? Who runs the world? The father of lies. He's called the God of this age. He's called the God of this age, the God of this world, the God of this, this time. John 8, 44, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, he told them, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks, he speaks his native language because he is a liar and the father of lies. Don't fall for his deception. What we see today is, is smoke and mirrors and deception. Without the Holy Spirit, the lies will seem to be truth. Look at it. If you've got the Spirit of God in you and you're watching the news, your little Holy Spirit antenna goes, whoa, I, I, that doesn't bear witness with me. I don't quite understand, but I'm, I'm, not under, I'm, not, I'm not going in that direction. Isaiah 5.20 says this. this was, the nation of Israel was doing this before they went into captivity. And you can see what's happening to us today. Calling evil good and good evil. This permeates our country today. It permeates our country today. Look at the Christian faces a tsunami of opposition. It's not just a little... It is a tsunami, a hurricane of opposition. Sometimes the pressure is off the charts. It's only through the Spirit's power that we can stand. Our world is not Christian friendly. It is not. We are past. We are post-Christian in America. Just in case you didn't know, we are post-Christian. You are becoming, Bible-believing Christians are becoming decidedly more and more and more the minority. More the minority. The normal Christian life is a life that is lived filled with the Holy Spirit. What does being filled with the Holy Spirit mean? What does that mean? Is this Christian jargon? What does it mean? Well, Ephesians 5, 17 through 20 tells us, Do not be drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled, plero, cram full of the Holy Spirit. That's written in the present tense. That's active, ongoing, life-lived filling. And that's how we are to live. It means yielded to the Holy Spirit, controlled by the Holy Spirit. The choice to live the normal Christian life is up to you. Who will you yield to? Will you yield to the Spirit's control? Or will you yield to the other forces that are working against the Spirit, the world, your flesh, and the devil? You have the triunity of evil working against you. And I would suggest to you, the one that you feed will be the one that dominates in your life. You think you're going to come to church one hour a week? Or even here, this is an extended period, an hour and a half. Do you think that you're going to be able to counter what's coming at you in this world? No way. You may throw in Tuesday night for an hour. That's not going to do it. What's going to do it? Daily, daily, daily time with God. It's the only way to live the victorious Christian life. It, I'm telling you the truth. Will you be filled with the Spirit or will you go the way of the world? Take a moment to think this. Think about this. Why were you saved? Why were you saved? Yes. Is salvation simply a get out of jail free card? Just in case, I get this, you're playing Monopoly. The Westminster Catechism tells us the chief end of all men, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And I insert it in there, to be a servant of the Lord Jesus. 
be a servant, a doulos, a bondservant, a voluntary slave of, of the master. I do not believe that we can understand or comprehend how special we are to God. I don't think we can understand it because we are in his family. He did everything. He paid every price to have us come into his family. He gave his only begotten son so we could get entrance into his family. His son was crucified, spat upon, hanged on a cross naked, beaten to a pulp beyond recognition. It says in, in, in Isaiah chapter 52, his visage or his appearance was marred beyond any person. He no longer even looked like a man. He did that for us. He took what I deserved. We have no idea. That's how much love he has. We've been adopted into his family with full rights and privileges of a natural-born child. That's hip, hip, hooray. Amen. We'll just say amen. That's a, I'll give myself one. Yes. This is huge. And one day, we will realize how special this is. One day. Now, verse 4 through 8, who are the 144,000? Believe it or not, there's a debate on this. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. And then you have the 12,000 from Judah down to Benjamin that were sealed. Just for time's sake. The number of super witnesses, as you can see, are 144,000. 12,000 from each tribe. Does that sound Jewish to you? Yes, it does. It sounds Jewish, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Who are these guys? Some points to consider. These are Jewish believers, not the church. There's a whole segment of Christendom. As a matter of fact, I would say the majority. If you're Reformed, if you're a mid-tribber or you're a pre-rather, you have to look at these people as being the church. More on that in just a second. I want you to recall something. Now, you're going to go back to your Daniel days. Remember a few, maybe it was almost a year ago, in our Daniel days, okay? Uh, the seven-year tribulation is the 70th week of Daniel. For you that know nothing about this, and you're going, what in the world is he talking about? Well, when the Jews came out of captivity, Daniel is, is spoken to by an angel and says, you have, th this is the 70-week prophecy that was given to them. In verse 24, it says this, 9:24. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. And we know that the way that it was written, these are weak years. So 70 times 7 are 490 years were given for the nation of Israel. To do what? They had to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, righteousness to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. They're waiting for Messiah to come, to put an end to all this stuff on earth. And they go all the way up to year 483. So the 70 weeks were promised to the people of Israel, to the Jewish people. These are, these, again, these are weak years, 490 years. Now, time stopped at the 69th week when Messiah was rejected. You get this, the 69th week, time seven, 483 years. Remember, we had this chart up here, week after week after week, and we explained it. So you who have been here, understand this. For you who have not been here, feel sorry for you. <laughs> but I will give you a picture of this. So between the 69th and 70th week is called the church age. So God is 
set his people aside, the nation of Israel, for a time. And now for this 2,000 plus years, it's called the church age. And now we have on the screen here kind of a weak diagram. I couldn't find a good one for this time, but this one will give us the story. So for 483 years, the Jewish timeline went until it stopped. Why? Because they rejected Messiah. They rejected Messiah. So, time stopped for them, and this gap of time right here is called the church age. 2,000 plus years. The church age ends when the coming prince takes us, and what I believe the rapture of the church becoming at this point. Now, this is very significant. God changes who his focus is from the church to the nation of Israel. And that's the last week. The last week. The whole seven years period of time. Jesus will come back at the end of this and establish his millennial kingdom. Now, if we were in a Bible study, or if you were to come to my home group, because we're going to be studying in our home group, questions that you have about what we've taught. And then you can ask all these questions and we can get into that. But right now, you don't have that opportunity. So the 70-week focus is back to Israel, not the church. The ch- I believe the church is gone, raptured in heaven. The 444,000 Jewish believers evangelized the world. Now, stop with me just a second. The Jewish nation was established for the expressed purpose of telling the rest of the world about the true God. There were all kinds of false gods that were being worshipped throughout the world. God called Abraham out of a nation, out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And from Abraham came the Jewish nation, his chosen nation, and they had a mission to share with the rest of the world who the true God was, or who the true God is. And we see that in Isaiah And I wasn't going to go here, but you're going to get it. So Isaiah chapter 49. I believe it's there. Thankfully, it's there. Okay. He says this. Is it too small a thing, Isaiah 49, 6, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, talking about Israel, the 12 tribes, and to restore the preserved ones of Israel? Is that too much? I have also give you as a light to the Gentiles. They were to be a light to the rest of the world, but they refused to tell the world about the true God. God gave them a chance for 483 years to accomplish this, and they get to Messiah, who shows the world that he is the Messiah by the signs and the wonders and the miracles and the prophecies that were fulfilled from the Old Testament prophets that Jesus fulfilled, and they still rejected him. They still rejected him. So time stops. So the focus is on is on the church, and then it'll be on the Jewish people again. Now, the 144,000 Jewish evangelists will accomplish what the nation refused to accomplish in the past. They are going to evangelize the world, just like they were always designed to do. God will carry out his plan. So, let me take a cleansing breath. (gasps) I saw Dale. He almost had to take one. Yeah, yeah. It's not just me. So back to our text. So there are 29 lists of the 12 tribes in the Bible. Genesis 35, 22 gives us the first list. Why the missing tribes? There's two tribes that are missing in this list. Walter Scott explains this. When the tribes are listed, this is a quote, 
When the tribes are listed in Scripture, there are 12 listed. Jacob had 13 sons. Remember, the 12 tribes came from Jacob and his wives. One is always omitted. It's usually the tribe of Levi. Why Levi? That's the priestly tribe. They had Levitical cities distributed throughout the nation, but the Levites did not have land that was given to them. All these other tribes had land given to them. In Revelation, Dan and Ephraim are omitted. Both tribes are remarkable as being connected with idolatry in Israel, the probable reason for blotting out their names. Now listen to this. You talk about the grace of God. The millennial distribution of land. That's when Jesus comes back, establishes thousand-year millennial reign on earth. In Ezekiel 48, 1 through 9, we see the millennial distribution. In the end, grace triumphs, and Dan is named. But he's farthest removed from the temple. Now, don't miss this. God gave Dan, who was an idolater, what Dan wanted. The extreme north. Now, it's going to be clear in just a second, so hold on. This is, was the, the consequence is this. Jesus will be reigning in Jerusalem during a thousand years. Dan is going to end up being farthest tribe from him. That's going to be very sad. That's going to be very sad. God gave Dan what he wanted, the extreme north. Jerusalem and the millennial temple where the Messiah will reign. This is sad. Now, I want to show you the picture here. Now, this, you're going to get it in just a second. This is where the tribes are located. Dan is the farthest away. This is where Jesus is going to be. He'll be reigning from this, this position, from Jerusalem. <coughs> now, if you were in our judges study, you would know that Dan was originally given land right down here by the Philistines. The problem with this is that Dan was frightened, fearful of the Philistines. So what did Dan do? Because they didn't want to fight with the Philistines. They had the armor. They had the swords. They had the metal. But God had told them, I've given you victory. But they chose to follow their own way. So what did Dan do? Dan migrated from here up to a place called Lachish. And these people were easily conquered. And then Dan established his tribe here. So he went against God, and as a consequence, he would have been right here. He would have been right here, right, right by Jesus in the millennial reign. But now he's farthest away. There is a consequence to pay for going your own way. So with that, many believe they are the 144,000. I can see that I'm running out of time. So the Seventh-day Adventists, they believe they're the ones. They, whoever keeps a Saturday Sabbath, they're the 144,000. They look at them as a collective group. The Jehovah's Witness believe they're the ones. So there's a fight between those two groups. Who's, who's, who's really, I'm, we are, you are, no, I am. So they go back and forth. But the problem that Jehovah's Witnesses had, they grew beyond 144,000. So then they had to change. So it's only 144,000 super-duper Jehovah's Witnesses that do whatever you do to be super-duper in that organization. They are the ones that go to heaven, and the rest of the lowerlings go to earth. And they're going to inhabit earth. And then there are those that believe the 144,000 are symbolic of the church. And they believe that the multitude that are saved in chapter 7, verse 9, which we will talk about next week, are the church. And again, you have to be a mid-tribber or a pre-rather to believe this, because you believe that the church is still here. Now, I want to show you something. 
There's a difference between the 144,000, which I believe are evangelical Jews, and the multitude that are saved, which I don't believe are the church. I believe they are tribulation saints. Now watch the difference. This is Andy Wood's work. And Andy Wood's give a distinction between these two groups. They're not the same. The I believe these are Jews. These are numbered in Revelation 7, 1 through 8. They're innumerable ones that are saved. They're not the same. These are Jews. These are all nations. These are carrying out the mission that the Jewish nation was supposed to carry out. Now they are in the tribulation period. These are sealed, protected by God. These are slain. They're not sealed or protected. They're going to heaven, but they're not sealed. These are sealed, I believe, before the tribulation, and these are converted and come out of the tribulation. These are different groups of people. This is not the church. That's the whole thing. Now, Robert Thomas says this. No number in Revelation is verifiably a symbolic number. That's symbolic of the church. The Bible says what it means. We must take it literally. The 144,000 are sealed Jewish evangelists. That's what it says. You have to do a lot of monkey business to try to make that different. Okay? The sealed Jews are those who come to faith in Jesus as Messiah during the tribulation. Remember, they are a witness. Then we have the two witnesses that will come forth that will be witnesses. And then we have the three angels in Revelation 14 that are going to be witnesses. So the whole world, every single earth dweller, will know that Jesus Christ is real and that he is true. He is true. Now I want you to think about something else. God's focus on the, in the tribulation period is on the nation of Israel. But the nation of Israel still does not believe in Messiah all the way through the seven years to the very end. Just a couple days left, and then they believe in Messiah. Romans 11, 25 and 26 tells us about a mystery. Now hang with me. Who the final harvest of Jews is. Paul says this, For I do not desire brethren that you should be ignorant of this mystery, something not revealed in the Old Testament revealed now. We've said this many times. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion that blindness in part has happened to Israel. So Israel is a blinded people group. The majority just can't see Messiah. They're blinded. But there are still Jews being saved. It's, it's not in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Until the Gentiles come into the into the family of God. The fullness of the Gentiles is every Gentile that will believe. If you're a Gentile, if you're not a Jew, just for clarification, okay? That's what Gentiles are, the rest of the world. So from, the, from Pentecost to the rapture of the church, there's a set number of people that will be saved, Gentiles that will be saved. That's the fullness of the Gentiles. Now, please notice, then it says, then all of Israel will be saved. Who is the all of Israel? That's the question. The all are those who believe at the end of the tribulation. How many are the all? Zechariah 13, 8 and 9, it says this, that two-thirds of Israel be cut off and die, but one-third shall be left. Now, who are the one-third? The one-third are those who see in the middle of the tribulation when Antichrist sets himself up in the temple 
and demands to be worshipped as God. They will see that and they will know Daniel's teaching on the abomination of desolation and they will flee to a place called Petra. And there God will supernaturally protect them. We'll see that later in our teachings in Revelation. So they will be saved. They'll call upon his name. The 144,000 folks that are saved are the means that God uses to fulfill Matthew 24, 14, that this gospel will be preached to all the world, a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Every earth dweller will know who the true God is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Yet the majority, this is mind-blowing, will shake their fists at God and side with the Antichrist. Amazing deception. Let's close. Let's close. When the church is taken out, when they're raptured, remember there's no believers that are going into the tribulation period. Everybody's lost. They're going to need a witness. So God will provide the witness that will tell them about Messiah. Many, in most, the vast majority that go into the tribulation, it's going to be a time of lawlessness and evil and upheaval that is beyond our imagination. We are seeing today just a preview of what's coming attractions. A preview. Antichrist will rise to power slowly. People will turn to him and, and for safety, and he will then be worshipped as God at the middle of the tribulation period. And then Satan will get what he has always wanted. Remember Isaiah 14, 14? Satan says, I will be like the Most High. I will be worshipped. And the Antichrist, the Pseudo-Christ, the False Christ, I believe will claim to be the true Christ. His deception will be profound, and most people will fall for it. And they will fight against the true Christ. Despite everything Satan does, God always has the upper hand. Isn't that like three, hip, hip, great. A remnant of Jewish believers will proclaim the gospel to the world and be miraculously protected from the Antichrist carnage. There will be a great harvest will occur. It will be the worst time in the history of planet Earth. Now look at, a lot of people say this is impossible. This is a fairy tale. Impossible, many say, and let me say this, not with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible. You know, nothing, nothing, absolutely. That is, nothing is impossible with God. God always has a faithful witness. But again, what does that mean to me? I want to make sure that I'm one of those people that is really in and not a make-believer. Many today claim to be in the family of God. But Titus 1.16 gives us this information. They profess to know God, but by their works they deny him. Oh, they profess to know God. They use a lot of God talk and Jesus speak, but in their lives they deny him. Others make no pretense today. You know that atheism is on the rise in America. It's on, a, it's on the rise. It's going down in Iran. It's going down in North Korea. It's going down wherever there's persecution and the church is rising up. But in America with the powder puff Laodicean church, it's on the rise. And they're fighting against God. They abjectly refuse to have God rule over them. Think about the earth dwellers that are left after the rapture of the church. 
your witness, what you have done while you are here, that it seemed like it fell on deaf ears. Like it seemed like there was just a stone wall there that they're not hearing. Maybe, just maybe at that time it'll come to mind. And the witness of the 144,000 may convince them that this is real. And many will be convinced, because you're going to see next week in chapter 7, verse 9, that there's a great harvest out of every tribe, tongue, and nation. It'll cost their lives. They'll be martyred. But there will be a great harvest. They all know that Jesus really is the Son of God, and that Jesus really did come to die to save them from an eternity of separation from God. Now remember this quote. It's from the philosopher Yogi Berra. It ain't over till it's over. And that's a true statement. It ain't over till it's over. As long as there are lives, folks, there is hope. As long as we have breath, there is hope. People deceived can have their eyes open. And you never know when there's a miracle right around the corner. You never know when that's going to happen. When the blinders will fall off, the hard heart will become soft, and somebody will become receptive to God speaking to them. So never give up hope. Keep believing. Keep trusting. God is in the impossible business. Our God is the God of the impossible. Let me just close with this little story here. This is a miracle story, and it's a true story. The place is Thailand. The time is in the 1970s when the Khmer Rouge were taking over that nation. Khmer Rouge was communist. And wherever communists go in, there's death. Whether it's Stalin, whether it's any, any, any place that's going in, whether it's Mao, millions of people die. It was no different in Thailand with the Khmer Rouge. The place is Kamput, Thailand, and the girl's name, a 19-year-old girl, is Khun Pegot. She escaped the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia after an arduous journey with a hundred others through miles of jungles, canals, mountains, and rivers. Standing between them and freedom were communist soldiers, the elements, and a stretch of jungle that covered what was covered with thorns. Most of the escapees were barefoot. At, at a midnight-like darkness hampered the struggling group as it crossed the valley between two high mountain ranges. We could see absolutely nothing, this young girl said to a missionary, Maxine Stewart. We didn't even know where to step next. It was so dark, so black, so hopeless. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, hundreds of fireflies swarmed into view. Their glow made enough light for the people to see the path. A lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path. The refugees reached the next mountain by firefly light and said, said Mrs. Stewart in the April edition of Commission Magazine, can you imagine all the fireflies in the jungle come focusing in, boom, on this path. And it is lighted and everything else is dark. After Payout was transferred to Khmer Put refugee camp, she was invited to a Christian meeting. And she said this, I know that man she exclaimed at a picture on the wall of the chapel. He's the one who led us and showed us the way to Thailand and freedom. And she was pointing at the picture of Jesus. Folks, God is a God of the impossible. With God, all things are possible. And I would encourage you, 
even more as we see the day approaching and you might feel a little more oppression, never give up hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. And Lord, we thank you for this word. Uh, we thank you for the 144,000 witnesses and the work that they're going to do future. That one day they will evangelize the world. That you always have a witness. But Lord, you've given us this time. This is our time to, to, to do the work that you've given us to do while it is light. Because you said be, the time is coming. Night is coming when no man can work. So while we still have light and while we still have breath and while we can still move and breathe and smell and hear, may we be witnesses for you. Father, I pray that you'd use this word to penetrate our, the, the hard veneer that we may have. I mean, some people believe this whole thing's a fantasy. But you have proven your word to be true. You've given us so much evidence that what you have said is true. What you have said in the past has come to fruition, has happened just like you said. And we believe that you, what you've told us will happen in the future will happen just like you said. Oh, Father, if there's someone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior, I pray today will be the day that they lay down their will and their way and receive the love of Jesus Christ. Receive the salvation that only he can give us. Lord, I pray for your miracle of new birth today, that you take someone that is dead in their trespasses and sins and bring them into your family, the family of God. And many of us, Lord, we go through life maybe as make-believers. We, we pretend at this thing. We're kind of in, kind of out, don't know where we really fit. Oh, I pray today is the day that people nail it down and say, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to be all out. We're going to be all out for you, Jesus. We're going to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow you. Again, thank you for this time to study your word. Holy Spirit, do your work in our group today, please. In Jesus' name, amen.